Welcome to the Strength Coach Experience Podcast. Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Lego. Your host. And here we and here we go, go, go. Uh, welcome to the uh, first episode of the Strength Coach Experience. Uh, I want to welcome uh, Richard James, uh, mentor, brother, and uh, my friend. Richard, how you doing? Chilling like a villain, walking on the streets of Brooklyn, enjoying <laughs> this beautiful um, night before June. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's been a crazy couple, three months, huh? Ah, crazy. It, it is. It is. But you know what? As we always say in the dungeon, um, make the necessary adjustment, right? Exactly. Yeah, no, and I think that's been the biggest thing over the last uh, couple months here. It's just learning how to adjust, you know, and, and not only learning, I think it's people are actually forced to adjust now. You know, your whole yeah. life changed based on something you really can't control with everything going on. And now you're phys- you know, physically forced to adjust, you know, whether it be workouts or, you know, cope mentally or, you know, with your job. Uh, but I think, you know, it's kind of a, it was kind of a pause there globally and it forced everybody to adjust, but we've been talking about that for about 10 years and doing it in the profession. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've, we've, we've seen it before. Um, it's going to happen again. And I, I'm actually blessed to be a part of this whole experience. Just watching how um, an idea could, could be so infectious um, as to shut down the entire world. And, and the idea we talk about is um, the whole COVID situation, which is actually an idea which forced everybody to, to adapt and um, adjust. But uh, given who we are and what we've been doing for the past however many years we've been doing it, we actually recognize that we had to adjust at some point in our life. And we, we actually embraced it like, Everybody in the Dungeon family, as far as what I know, um, they've been doing real well in this COVID. Yeah. Like, we weren't doing good, so so we weren't doing well, um, so well earlier on in our lives. And now we're starting to literally thrive in the most stressful part. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> you're right. stressful I mean, part of life. Yeah, you're right. Everybody we've talked to pretty much, you know, and I've been, you know, reaching out to everybody, you know, in the in the Dungeon crew. And for everybody out there listening who, you know, you know who you are. Um but yeah, I mean, you know, it's just, we've been doing it for 10 years. And when we all started, you know, in the dungeon, we, uh, we had to make the adjustments to make things work. And I think this was just uh, something that happened and it was a terrible thing. And, you know, everybody had to deal with it different, but I think we were uh, kind of, I felt like we were a step ahead, you know, because we've nonchalantly kind of been preparing for something like this for quite some time, you know, because regardless of what life throws at you, uh, you have to adjust, you know, or you can, you can give up or you can adjust, you know, there's no middle and there's no, kind of hanging out uh, undecided. You either adjust or you, you perish, pretty much. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's, 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 that's basically our lives, right? Exactly, <laughs> yeah. So it's been, you, 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 know, you were born, you were going to die when you were a kid. Like, dude, you, you walk around with a limp and most people don't even see it because you've figured out how to adjust to that. And um, as for me, I grew up in one of the most dangerous countries in the world in the 80s and it's 80s yeah, no, and 90s yeah and it's, it's been a change yeah and uh you know we'll just piggyback right on that let's uh let's get right into it you know uh with the experience just uh give us a you know uh, start us off you know from birth till now you know let us know who, uh, what makes you uh richard james and what what uh what has shaped you uh up until this point in your life hmm. from birth well I, i'm gonna tell you the honest truth i really don't remember sliding out the, um <laughs> my mother's parts, but um, <laughs> I'll catch up <laughs> where, where I remember. We can, we can and, skip up ahead a little bit. Uh, I remember, like, yeah, I'm going to start when I was three years old because that was the first memory I had. I was three years old getting ready to go to, to Boundbrook Infant School. And... Um, my mom took me to school and I was I was so confused. I was always hanging around with my mom and now she's leaving me with a bunch of strangers. 
And my mother kneeled down to me, kissed me on the forehead and said, Tina, what are you crying for? This is a part of life. This is something that you have to adapt to. Yes, you're leaving the house and you won't have me, you won't have your uncles and your aunties. But look around you. The people your size, they're your friends. And those statements basically put my little heart at ease. And then later on in the day, I pissed myself and I shit myself. <laughs> well, I think, you know, uh, you know, just being around you for that long, I mean, you know, that stuff still that your mother told you three is, you know, has resonated with all of us, you know, that worked with you and had the pleasure of being around you, uh, you know, yeah, because that's how we, you know, we approach everything uh, now. So what, uh, what happened after the first day of school? Did you start to acclimate a little bit? No, I shit myself for about a week. I was too scared to go ask, hey, can I go to the bathroom? And then um, I, was, I was told that's not the direction to go. We didn't have enough pants. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I had to adjust. That was my first adjustment. Um, and as I got older, I remember next memory, I was six years old, um, graduation day. I looked around, I saw every kid with a gift, a book, a balloon, slice of cake, whatever it is, something that showed appreciation for um, their little three-year journey. And um, my friend, Richard James, had nothing. And I looked at my mom and I was like, hey, why, why is it that she have and he has and all of these people have and um, I have nothing? My mother looked at me again and said, hey, what did you do to get something? And it made sense. First couple of days, I shit myself. So <laughs> started yeah. off on a bad foot. Yeah. And um, at six years old, when she told me that, I, I made a conscious decision that wherever I go, I will leave my mark. And the next, the next memory I have, I can share it with you also, is my first day of uh, primary school, what you guys call elementary school, grade mm -hmm. one. Yeah, Norwich Primary School. Norwich, by the way, if you guys ever have a chance, go check out Norwich. It's one of the most beautiful coastal regions in Jamaica. Oh, hillside, beautiful views. Best time to be at Norwich is right around 2 o'clock to 4 o'clock. Get beautiful, cool sunlight. Actually, it's not really hot. It's cool. And um, you can look over the, the ocean. But let's go back to my first day. My first day, I met a lady by the name of Miss McLean. And my mother promptly told Miss McLean, you have the authority to straighten them out whenever you need to. Well, for you people who don't know what that means, um, corporal punishment. I would be spanked if I misspelled a word, misbehaved, got into fights. Well, I got a lot of beating for that. And um, that's where my next development came through after about a couple months of being in school was being very rebellious continue to give trouble every day in grade one and my mother came to school again and my mother said to me richard james do you understand who you are and i'm just listening to my mother like what the hell is she talking about do you understand who you are and she stood up in front of me and she said, you were born December the 1st, 19, and she told me whatever year I was born. I won't tell everybody, but you'll find out. And she said, that mean you were born at the last part of the great years. You're one of the last great babies, but you're not showing greatness. You're showing the opposite. And when you do that, you're not only hurting yourself, you're hurting your grandfather and your grandmother. And most of all, you're hurting your children. <laughs> and I'm just like, yo, wait a minute, my children, I'm not even old enough yet. Yeah, you're in the first grade. But uh, no, it seems like, you know, but she gave you, uh, you know, perspective at an early yeah. age. And it takes some people, some people never figure it out, you know, but it seems that, you know, she, she opened your eyes that you're, you know, there's things bigger than, uh, than yourself that you affect every time you make a decision on a daily basis. 
Yes, yes, yes. And and that that piece of information was um, worse than a spanking because I stood up in the middle of the schoolyard and I cried. And multiple kids came around and saw me and my mom talking and I was crying and they were laughing and pointing. And that was the most beautiful thing that I could ever say. Mm-hmm. And I decided that day that when I leave Norwich Primary School, I was going to leave Norwich Primary School as... As an, as an outstanding student. Fast forward to, I think, 1992. Yeah, 1992. I graduated. Most outstanding student. From there, hell broke loose, my friend. Hell broke loose. Um, I'm going to tell you this. I've never told most people. I don't, I, I've never told you this. After I graduated at that elementary school, I was blind for a good six months. Wow. Could not see. Yeah, I don't tell mom, but my mom knows about it. Blind for six months. I had to go into, the Kings, into Kingston Public Hospital every Monday to have someone place an injection needle into my eyeball, extracting whatever juice is inside of it to, to figure out if there's an infection that's causing my blindness or whatever it was. I've never felt that much pain in my life. Yes, they had put stuff in my eyes to numb the feeling, but that pressure of somebody sticking a needle into your eye. Yeah, it's I crazy. Mean, I could, could only imagine that at a young age and you know all this adversity before, uh, you know, before you were about 12 years old. Uh, I was 12. Yeah, I was 12. That's a lot. You know, all this stuff, all this perspective, all this stuff. I mean, it was like you're, you know, being told adult lessons and having to deal with, you know, uh, real problems and things like that at a very early age. So how did the uh, when you started running, how did that uh, how did all this stuff affect uh, when you first started, you know? All right. So let me explain how this running thing comes in. So I was at Kingston Public Hospital and I decided that um, when I get better. I am going to be good at something. I tried a whole lot of stuff. I was actually telling my son about it today, dying with laughter. I tried table tennis, karate, everything, and I sucked at it. (laughs) And then one day I saw some kids running around the track and um, 13 years old, tried for the track team. I got beat by every body who had legs. Yeah. 13 years old, I remember one young man look at me. His name is Jarvis. Jarvis looked at me and said, hey, what are you doing? I said, I'm, I'm training for the track team. Why? I want to go to the Olympics. And his friends, along with him, did what most American kids would call bullying right now. They laughed me to scorn. Their statement was, how can you get to the Olympics when you can't even beat the girls? And in the back of my head, I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. Like, oh, I got to beat the girls. All right, then. Let us move on. It was a struggle beating the girls because Jamaican women are very strong and strong-willed. And if they beat you one time, you're going to stay beaten forever. So it was a, a little bit of a work getting past that hurdle. Mm-hmm. And um, Joe, I'm going to tell you, there's another obstacle. And I, and I don't know if I'd show you that scar on my um, on my left Achilles. Yeah, I think you've told me the story before. Yeah, yeah, that was another hurdle. I was playing around in a dumpster. Not really in a dumpster, like in a trash heap. Stepped on a can. And then the can ultimately... Um, sliced my Achilles heel. It's a weird thing. I stepped on the can, it clamped onto my right foot, but then there was a little part sticking out to the side and it sliced my Achilles heel. I had to walk my backside straight to the Port Antonio Public Hospital. And I got that stitched up. And that's how a lot of this thing start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all through adversity. Yes, man. As as that Achilles heel started to heal, I started to put force on it, ask it to work. Like, yo, dude, work, work. 
And I found out that I had a spring in my step after that. And from that spring in my step, I go back to practice and the girls were still beating me. Not all of them, though. Not all of them. Just the fast ones. Just the tall, strong, fast ones were beating me. And then I recognized at the age of 14, 15, that I was not strong enough. Not mentally, but physically. Mm -hmm. I wasn't able to, you know, exert the amount of force that I need. So I decided... You know what? I'm going to start running. Actually, it was 14 years old. After that thing healed, I decided I wanted to start running every morning. From 5 o'clock in the morning. Every morning. Actually, I started at 6. 6 o'clock in the morning. Then I used to meet my grandmother at the, at the road. And my grandmother had to be at work at 6 o'clock in the morning. She had to be at work at 6 o'clock in the morning. And I always liked meeting my grandmother because she lived down the street from me. So I would get up earlier so that I could see my grandmother. I'm going on the road. She's going on the road. I remember my grandmother used to wave at me through the, through the bus window as I'm running up the hill. And, oh, that gave me so much energy. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah. I did about... that from 2014 all the way to 2016. And uh, not 2014. I'm sorry. Back to ninety. These are the nineties. I'm sorry. Ninety. <laughs> okay. Sorry. All the all the days are jammed together anyway. Somebody asked me for the day today. I said it's somewhere between March and July. I'm not blaming it on Corona, but everything <laughs> I'm talking about with regards to my age at fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, those are in the nineties. Those yeah. are in the nineties. <laughs> so what, that's where this whole madness started, man. Just yeah. trying to figure it out. Myself. Uh, what uh, what sort of stuff did you do, uh, you know, in terms of running? Did you do any lifting and stuff? I mean, I know we've talked about several times about different surfaces and things that you ran on. Change After getting my backside kicked a lot, a lot of time by most of the girls, I got tired of this whole thing. So as I said, I started doing my long runs. I got really good at the long runs, but I was still not able to run faster than the girls. I can run with them, stay with them, but there are a few I couldn't beat. So I decided, you know what, I wonder if I run up hills, if that would get me faster. And I started to do hill runs. Hill runs became easy. And those poor girls didn't know I was going to hit them. I just blazed past them. Then I graduated to the, um, to, the, to the boys training group, the distance boys, the boys distance group. Yes, because um, I was too slow to hang out with the fast kids. Um, the distance for a little bit. And then I, I was playing around with some of my friends on the beach and I noticed that the taller kids were just leaving me in the dust. One of my best friends' name is Richard Ferguson. He was just dusting me when we were playing on the beach. So I'm like, oh, so I have to start hanging out with, with, this, with this dude and train with him because his strides are longer than mine and we're going to run in the beach. And um, we did beach training a lot and we started getting better but a pivotal moment the pivotal moment is the year the summer of 1995 1995 that's when i really put my shoulders to the to the wheel i ran every morning and these are the runs that i would normally do i would go for a long run which is about a three to five mile run on monday wednesday friday on Tuesday and Thursday, Tuesday, I'll do hill sprints. Do a lot of hill sprints. On Thursday, I'll go do beach runs. So that's how I would knock out the whole situation. Um, after about four weeks in the summer, I found out all of that was getting a little bit easy. So I decided to um, get an old backpack, throw sand in it, and start running with the sand in the backpack. That got easy. And I decided I, when I'm training at the beach, instead of running just with the backpack, I'm going to run in the water, knee-high water. And that knee-high water forces you to pick your foot up the right way and attack the water, attack the ground the same way because you're trying to part the water as you put your foot down into the ground. And um, having that bag of sand on my back that sandbag collected a lot of water, so there goes additional weight. 
But the only problem with that is that the sand with water create an abrasive material or abrasive situation. Mm-hmm. Many times I would literally run the skin off my back because oh, wow. that sand in the backpack would just go through. And uh, you know what? I recognize it was a it was a part of the whole process. Mm-hmm. I had to have some skin in the game, as they would say. Yep. And, and mind you, a lot of these things are being done in shoes that look like Vans. Vans type shoes, you know, Vans, yeah, those skateboarder shoes. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's what I was running in. Yeah, but, you know, yeah, but you know, you're making the adjustments, you know, and I think that, you know, we'll get to it in a little bit, but that's what made you as a coach. And, you know, I think that's what, you know, we've talked about it before, what's kind of missing uh, in today's, you know, athletes coming up is they don't go through struggle or they don't do these things or they're not, you know, placed in positions where they have to adapt or overcome or have people tell them that they're not good enough. Uh, and then it doesn't allow you to, you know, to make adjustments, you know, it doesn't, mm-hmm. you know, if somebody tells you you're not good enough, you know, same thing we talked about, either you can listen to them or you can figure out a way to be better. If, or if not they tell you, like if someone tell you you're not good enough, they're probably telling the truth. Like, yeah, would you course. like to know that you're not good enough? And if you're not good enough, wouldn't you like to know where can I get better? Because that's exactly. how I looked at the whole system. Yeah, exactly. I didn't look at it like, like, oh, you're hurting my feelings. Like, first of all, um, it's your feelings. And if you want to feel good, take this crappy-ass message and build something out of it. Exactly. It's as simple as that. We're Mm -hmm. living in a world right now in the United States where individuals are looking for people to take care of them. Yep as opposed to recognizing that your hands and your feet and your brain are your tools for taking care of yourself. Exactly. And it's also, you know, they want to be, you know, they want gratification before they succeed or they want, uh, you know, they want to come up with a facade. And I think we've talked about it before, you know, you need gratification, to go through trials. Sorry from a language, but gratification is like busting a nut. <laughs> have you ever clocked a nut bus feeling? Like, have you ever clocked it? Yeah. <laughs> No, for real. Have you ever clocked it? Like, yeah, yeah. on your mark, set, go. Yeah. <laughs> it's a very, very short period. Yeah. And that's, that's what, what gratification I'm is. Yeah. And what it says, you know, go back to, you know, we talk about, you know, the brain chemicals. That's all it is. You get dopamine for that 12 seconds that you're gratified and then it goes back down. You know, the, but, then the cortisol. But you also up. get, but you also get dopamine when you, when you reach obstacles, like little tiny obstacles and you hop over them. Mm-hmm. You got these parents running around nowadays, literally just bulldozing all of the obstacles out of their kids' way and then trying to figure out, oh, or even trying to say, oh, my son or my daughter, she's or he is this good. No, they're not. You just created a ridiculous space for them to be good. Yes, exactly. anybody can be good if you create the space for them to be good. Mm-hmm. Exactly. If the trail has no hills and no leaps and no bounds and no rocks and holes, it's going to be easy. Exactly. You, yeah. you have to go through the adversity. You have to go through the hard times because now you have to be left alone to figure out what you're going to do. You have to be left alone to figure out how you or yourself are going to solve the problems. Because, you know, you know, it for a fact, when I was at LIU, you know, I used to tell the players, you need to learn how to figure this out on your own because the coaches or me is not going to be on there on the field no. or in the box. No. You have to, you have to figure no. it out and you have to learn how to do it because in life you're on your own all the time. You're going to have people that help you people for support, but if you truly want to succeed and you truly want to fix problems, it's on your own. Yeah. It's on your own except for one or two times when someone will give you an opportunity to get yes. better. So, I remember back in like um, the same year, that same year, 95, I was given a pair of um, Rawlings cleats, the rubber cleats, Rawlings rubber cleats, (laughs) that one with a flap on top of it. Yep, had those when I played Blue League. (laughs) Yep, by one of my good buddies who used to live in Miami. He came down and um, he was like, yeah, here you're running, I brought these shoes for you. And to me, those were the most beautiful things I'd ever seen in my life. Blue Rollins shoes. And I looked at the size of the shoes that were a half, a half a measure smaller than my feet. 
but at the same time, I had to wear it because that's the yeah, only you had thing shoes. I had. You had shoes that's, though. Now I have shoes, and it's not like I didn't have shoes. Like now I got good training shoes. Mm-hmm. Now I have good training shoes. And what I had to do was actually, those are the shoes that actually made me run in the water because they were mm-hmm. made out of leather. And I knew if I run in the water in these leather shoes, they will eventually, um, <laughs> that was a dumb idea. They would eventually stretch out. I, yeah. I, I lost the skin off, the, off my big toe on both feet for doing that. That was a good lesson learned. But it was, was a lesson learned, lesson. yeah. So then take yeah. us in, how did, how did you arrive in Brooklyn? Oh, Brooklyn. <laughs> oh, my God. I, in order for me to tell you how I arrived in Brooklyn, I have to go back to 96 again. And 96 was my breakout year when I went to Boys Championship, and um, nobody knew I existed, just mm-hmm. as all, a lot of people don't know I exist right now. And I just showed up on the scene, became one of the top athletes in the country. I did that... Um, 2016 expecting to go into 2017 as a favorite and just as our most baseball athletes got disappointed this year wrong, wrong, year, wrong year disappointed. again wrong year again wrong year again let's go 16, back 16 17 96 97 96 97 thanks a lot <laughs> <laughs> yeah 96 97 um i looked at the whole thing and I'm like, okay, I'm going into 97 and I'm going to be the top athlete. I'm going to be great. And um, right before my regional championship, my principal decided to cancel the track and field season. Wow. Cancel the track and field season. How did you deal with that? How did you... Oh, it's a, it's a normal situation, man. When they, when someone tells you no, it's, it doesn't mean no. It means next opportunity. Mm-hmm. So he told me I can't run for the school. So I ran for my the, the club, my parish club. I ran for my club. Basically ran for my club. And one day I was training on campus at Titchfield High School and the principal came out of his office. Um, didn't you didn't I tell you that the track and field season is over? Why are you training? I'm like, oh yeah, the track and field season for the school is over. I adjusted. I'm running for the parish of Portland. It's like, oh. Okay, like thank you very much. So now, from '97 going into '98, again, 18 years old, I'm a tough kid, ready to go, go off, and everybody did well. Came in top five in Jamaica, and this is in the 800, and um, didn't get a scholarship. So I decided to go back to my high school and um, volunteer as a coach. I remember it was a February, February 99. I was, I was, I trained this kid to, to just go out there and tear people apart. He did really, really well. And one of the managers for the Jamaica national team, Mr. Brian Smith saw me. He's like, what are you doing here? You're too good. You should have a scholarship already. I'm like, "Uh, nobody offered me anything. And he's like, okay, don't worry about it. Let me call some people for you. Made a call, got into got into um, Southwestern Christian College in Terrell, Texas, and I tell you, man, that place was one interesting place. I never knew the N word until I got to Texas, and I knew I had to leave Texas real quick. And um, from there, that's how I got to to Brooklyn, to Simon Hodnett, where. Um, Richard James the Beast started to blossom into his own. When I went to LIU Brooklyn, that's in 2001. My first three weeks, my first three weeks of experience was one of tragedy. I witnessed the Twin Towers. It's um, getting thrown to the ground like little pieces of tin can. Well, that's great. Yeah, that's right. That's right in there. It was in the eighth yeah. grade. Yeah. And I look at that whole situation, Joe, and I said to myself, wow, I would love to see how New York get out of this mess that they're in right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, but between crazy. that, between then and now, it's a lot of things that has happened. 
It's a lot of things that has happened because that whole mentality about making necessary adjustment, I brought it to Brooklyn. I went to LIU, Long Island University. Yeah. And um, being at LIU Brooklyn, I learned what made the necessary adjustment mean firsthand. When did you know when you were at LIU that you were different than everybody else there? Like what made you know that you had a different mindset? First day of practice. First day of practice. First day of practice, I'm Coach Simon Santa Mark said, go. And uh, I wanted a space on the team. And I went out 100%. And when I looked behind me, there was a ridiculous space between me and the second place person who coincidentally was one of my former teammates at the junior college down in Texas. And from that day, I told myself, I'm going to die on this track. Oh, that's what you have to do. You know, uh, <laughs> I think that's, the, like I said, going back to it, that is exactly what you need to do in order to succeed at the level that you were trying to get to. I think that yeah. there needs to be no, you know, no stones unturned, nothing left. And it's just willing to forget everything and kind of leave it out there. And uh, yeah. again, you know, if, if you go on a mound or you go on a field and you, you, there's things to worry about, especially in the age of, you know, 16 to 20, where there's nothing to really worry about, uh, you know, I think that's where people get caught up. You know, they worry about form this and that, this and all this other stuff. And in reality, you're just supposed to just do, you know. And there's a thing do. my mom used to tell me when I was a kid. The devil uses two tools to trap people's spirit. Number one, the fear of death, the fear of dying. Mm -hmm. And number two, the fear of ridicule, the fear of being laughed at. Yep. My mom mm -hmm. said that to me and my dad said to me one day, dad was like, if you're not afraid to die, you will live to the fullest. If you're not afraid for people to laugh at you, you'll reach the highest. Yeah, and, I think it's true. And, and that's basically what I've what I've adapted. I'm not afraid to die because I was born to die. Yes, of course. And if you're, you know, you don't want to have any regrets. So you have to live every day as if you're preparing to do that. And that's yes, why you do yeah. everything with full you know you have to be all in with everything and i think yeah. that's what separates everybody athletics coaching wise teachers you know if everybody at any point you know if today was the last day steve jobs said the best you know if today if you were going to die tomorrow would you regret what you're doing today you know and if the answer is no for too many times it's time to change it's time to figure something out you know and and i think that one of the things is a lot of people think that they need to do something big become a billionaire become a professional yeah. athlete it has nothing to do with that it's all about what you want how you can impact. change and what you can do. Exactly. How many Tiny people can impact. you impact? How many people can yeah. you impact? Or, or how much can you impact yourself? Or what, what can you do to better yourself that will eventually help other people? You know, I think yeah. that's when we talk about goal setting, you know, everybody, you know, talks about, well, they need all these big giant goals or these outlandish things. They want to be like everybody on TV. And I'm like, no, it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with what do you want? And then how can you get there? And who do you First need of to all, help you get Joe, there? Joe, you're asking a lot of these kids questions that they would never be able to answer mm -hmm. because as we recognize already being in the college setting for years and analyzing these kids the first thing these kids do not have is trust yep. and in order for you to know what you want you first have to know yourself yep. in order for you to know yourself you first have to have trust mm -hmm. you understand yeah because if you don't but, have trust you don't know what you what you need or who you want around you if you don't have you trust and you can't have trust if you've never been tested. Yep. You can't have trust if your parents bulldoze all of the obstacles out of your way. You don't know what method work, what system work, what tactics work. You don't trust the system that you're a part of because that system has never been tested. Yep. You understand? And, then, and that, that yeah. is where I have a problem with this whole training system where people are not willing to test the physical and mental capacity of the students that they're mentoring. 
Of course, because if you can't test them in a safe environment where you know with your knowledge that nothing bad is going to really happen to them, then how are they supposed to prepare for in a, in a position where something could happen or if they're not yeah. willing to put that on the line? But if you can't mimic that as close as you can, and we're not yeah. talking about crazy, deadlift 500 pounds. Well, I can't do that. Well, try. What is the worst thing that can possibly happen? Your body's going to shut you down before you get hurt anyway. You're not going to die. And if you get, and if you get hurt, it's going to be a minor, minor hurt. Exactly. The only thing is you can push yourself to making yourself hurt worse. But the way we train you, it's a simple thing. As soon as you feel something that does not feel right, we get back to the drawing board. Exactly. And we put you in a position. Exactly. Put you in a position that you're uncomfortable and you'd like to feel uncomfortable. Right. And that's the thing. If you can feel comfortable amongst anarchy, that is where you should live, and that is in when you know that you're at your best. When everything around you is insane, and you can quiet everything and focus on the goal. So let's move right into the. So how did you start coaching after this stuff with the trek? I, I had you, really great mentors. Mm-hmm. I had really great mentors. I had um, really great mentors. I had Mr. Dunstan at Titchfield High School. Then I, I went to Marlon Bar. In, um, in Texas. And then from there, I, I met Simon, who was a really good mentor, really good coach. But the people who were most impactful to me are um, number one, Oral Dunstan, and um, Simon Hadnett, number two. And then I got to meet Radomir Kovacevic, Milorad Stretchovic, and Eugene Spatz, three of the most brilliant people you'll ever meet in your life. Just know them very well. <laughs> yes. Unfortunately, I, I wish Kovacevic was alive to actually speak to people because his his information helped a lot, especially on the mental part of it. Um, Kovacevic is a um, is a judoka who has competed at multiple world championship. Um, he was a captain of the, the Tokyo um, University of Tokyo's the judo team. Um, Millerad Stretchovich is a cardiologist, neurologist, and exercise oh, physiologist. my favorite. Best neurology <laughs> teacher I've ever had. <laughs> and um, Eugene Spatch is just an all-around, all-around great professor. Amazing. And, uh, and as I say, Simon is just a great strategist. And I saw how they approached their training system to bring the best out of everyone. And I got a little bit jealous because guess what? These guys are doing God work. That's how I was looking at it. Like he, They're literally building people like turning people into world champion turning people into olympians people who don't even know that they have the ability they just 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 build them and that was so exciting to me i looked at that whole situation and i said like you know what i would like to see one or two young ladies and young men experience the joy that i've experienced in going to the olympics and getting a world championship gold medal in making it to the NCAA finals, being all American, like having a, having a school record, doing something that nobody in their family has ever done before. Like those things are the things that drove me to, to want to become a coach, to want to mm-hmm. become a, a social engineer for greatness. That's what I call it. Yes. Like you're, you're, no. Yeah, you're right. No, and, and, and I can do the same thing with you, you know, because I remember the first time I was in the dungeon, you know, watching the women's basketball team train in that rickety place with the tire and chains hanging from the ceiling. And everybody was like, oh, this is whatever, you know, this is cool. But I remember the, the way in which you trained and the expression on all the, you know, the girls' faces and how happy and how committed everybody was. And I remember I was like, I want to do that. You know, this yeah. is what I want to do. I don't, the training stuff doesn't, it's not me making people lift heavy. It's, I want to make them feel the same way and let you them know that, that they environment. can do Exactly. Yeah. Being the yeah, creator you create that environment, environment where they want to be great, where they're willing to listen to the information, follow the direction and push past the limit. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons why we, we, we vet people out of our dungeon because everybody had to have a certain level of love for what they're doing. 
Mm-hmm. You yes. can't be doing it because you want to show people that, oh, I'm better than that person. I'm better than that person. Guess what? You suck. <laughs> yeah. And no, and then for those of you who don't know, listening, you know, the dungeon was a, you know, it was the green room for an organ room at LIU Brooklyn. You know, and when you walked in there, you already had to be willing to sacrifice. We had nothing. Yeah. We had nothing. a rug and three squat racks. I mean, you went through it a lot more than I did. I was over there after 09, but you know, I just remember being in there and everybody was like, this is terrible. And I was like, this place is amazing. Yeah. It's like, it's the barest bones that you can possibly get. And if you can yeah. create an environment of success out of this, wherever these people go out of here, there is nothing that can stand in their way. Listen, we were using, we were using chains for TRX. Yep. <laughs> we were using chains. With a steel V handle hanging from the ceiling. It is steel V. Yeah. Yeah. Because we, we didn't have it. And we our motto was make the necessary adjustment. Exactly. And regardless of what was going on, we had to adjust for greatness. Exactly, of course. Uh, did you start coaching at all while you were running? I started uh, coaching when I was 19 years old okay. in high school. Like, like I started with, with my high school team. Did you do and strength I, conditioning in Jamaica? I, did just do, I didn't do strength and conditioning, just running. Okay. It's learning how the best coaches teach people how to pick those feet up and put them back down. And then um, it's when I came to LIU Brooklyn and I saw athletic trainers. Actually, I was doing athletic training as a, as a, as a class. I, I wanted to be an athletic trainer because that's what they put on the, on the thing. So mm-hmm. I wanted to do sports medicine. They're like, oh, the closest thing we have is athletic training. I'm like, okay, what is athletic training? Athlete gets injured, you run out on the on the field and you take care of the athlete, boom, boom, boom. I'm like, okay, that's that's interesting. I'm gonna do that. After about a good six weeks of doing it, I'm like, okay, I get the athletes after they've been broken. So I I, I don't have a I don't have a say in trying to fix these athletes. Mm-hmm. That that was my question. And the professor looked at me and said, Listen, we're the first line of defense. And that statement that he said, we're the first line of defense, it made me feel good because I thought I was going to be able to make a change in the athlete's life. And then I went to practice and I saw five girls on the women's basketball team with the same injury. And they were not able to do anything about those injured athletes. And that's where it hit me. I am the first line of defense. I am a strength and conditioning coach. And that's where it started. That's where it started. And when I came back from the Olympics in 2004 and I went to do my grad school, I was given the opportunity by TJ Kostecki to work with his soccer team for that off season and that preseason. And um, the winnings that I would take from track and field actually went on into that soccer team. And they won their first conference championship. And that, that feeling flooded through my body, that feeling of joy, like, I can do this. I can do this. Yeah, and I Next. think that's the biggest thing that we all deal with. I mean, the same thing for me, too. You know, you, you, I think you constantly question what you're doing until you're successful. And not that you need of success, course. but when you get the camaraderie, when everything comes together, um, you know, and the team succeeds. You know, I, I don't know if anybody, unless you're a strength coach or you coach, that feeling you get when your team is succeeding you know I mean I could talk about it in 18 you know when we were at Coastal Richard that feeling just being there and knowing that they (laughs) did it I was there you know I helped put the workouts together but but that them together as a team I mean there is not a feeling like it you know minor leagues and every other place there's not a feeling in the world where I was like wow we we made it we talked about this in September yeah I I love the way you condition those kids man and when we talk about conditioning, I don't talk about you running up and down. Like, that's, that's, that's easy stuff. Or when we talk about condition, we talk about creating an environment where a thought process is normal, where the thought process of success is normal, where the thought process of winning is normal, where the thought process of embracing the suck, of embracing when shit goes bad. That is what we're talking about when we talk about conditioning. That yes. mental part, that exactly. 99% that is mm-hmm. lurking under the, under the surface. Yep, and putting every make... player yep, putting yeah. every player on the team in a position where they can <coughs> excel. Not that they're yeah. all going to be great. Not that they all have the same athletic abilities. It's your ability to take all 30, 15, 12, whatever amount 
players you have and getting them to put them all in positions where they can concede at the highest level to achieve one common goal. Yeah. Yeah. It's like basically watching an orchestra just go off and play the most beautiful music. Drums are beating, the horns are playing and the guitars are strumming and then everything has flowed together. Exactly. But some instruments play soft, some instruments play loud, some have solos, yeah. other play in unison. Exactly. Yeah. It's all a beautiful orchestra. Yeah. And you're the and that's what coaching is. That's mm -hmm. what coaching is. Whether you're a strength and conditioning coach or you're a real life sport coach, it's, it's taking all those beautiful ingredients to make a wonderful soup. Out of, that's how I talk about it every time. Exactly. You and your and soup. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, no, but it's an orchestra. But the other thing is, too, I look at it is, but if you drop that baton, Richard, the orchestra can still play without you because you've taught course. them how to live through experiences and through the adversity. We're so we're so caught up with winning that we don't even learn. <laughs> no, exactly. Winning doesn't winning doesn't make you a great coach. It's the yeah. it's the it's the impact that you left after. You know, you and me do it all the time. You talk to kids that you coached five years ago and they'll bring yeah. up the stuff you did in the weight room. And you're like, really? this is what you remember and they're successful business people and they've gone on with their lives and have kids and they, they still remember, you know, the, the six months or the eight months that they were with you and, and how, you know, the things that you talked about over weightlifting deadlifts and yeah. over a sport and it still reigns yeah. supreme in, in, in real life, you know? And, and I think that's, that's the best feeling, you know, for me, and I'm sure you can, you know, agree with that is that, you know, it's, the, it's the changes you make and you don't really know yeah. the impact really until some years later. Yeah, you know what? I can I can jump on that with this whole experience of being at LIU, happening in 2007. Yes, I'm in the right year. 27 years old, being a strength and conditioning coach. Um, never had an experience of actually following or shadowing any strength coaches. I just read a couple of books and um, watched a couple of really good um, track and field coaches, and then um, listened to a couple of guys talk about picking things up and putting them down heavy things <laughs> and then applying what I learned in grad school and undergrad at LIU to creating a program. I remember I was training the men's basketball team and they were mentally drained um, after a really crazy um, on-court workout and they decided to give the guys dodgeball, have them play dodgeball. And at the end of dodgeball, uh, I'll go downstairs to them and I'm like, hey, listen, yo, the season sucks. How many more games y'all have? All they got to do is just break it, break at it one by one. Coach Jim Ferry, who's at um, Penn State right now, he got wind of what I was doing. He called me in a stairwell, and he basically gave me the most beautiful lecture that anyone could ever get. He basically told me, uh, this is not your team. Your job is to work for me to get my team ready to win championship. And I looked at him and I said, Coach, you are right. I'm the strength and conditioning specialist. And given what I see today, I don't think these guys need to be in the weight room lifting. He replied to me, you don't tell me what my guys need. I tell you what my guys need. Do your job. And I recognize immediately that as a strength and conditioning coach, you're basically a servant to the sport coach. And if you don't know what you're doing, the sport coach will lead you astray. Exactly. I actually didn't listen to him. I didn't listen to him. I did my own thing. Yep. And um, <laughs> I told him within the next three to five years, and this, uh, this happened in 2009. I said, within the next three to five years, if you don't win a championship, I will quit. In fact, I expect you to win at least one championship within the next five years. 2011 came, won a championship. And how I know it's a lot of my strength and conditioning along with his freaking awesome coaching because the man is brilliant as hell. I don't hang around with dumb people. Um, nobody could keep up with us. Nobody could jump like us. Nobody could run like us. Nobody could 
defend like us. We were winning games with an average of 82.5 points per game. Teams were gassed before the first 10 minutes of the game. And that was because of a comprehensive training program that took pieces of tennis, soccer, track and field, football, and gymnastics. Yeah, now it's an integrated system. You know, 11th when I arrived, legit. And that's when things were just starting to take off. I remember those years, three years in a row. Yes. We just destroyed everybody. We destroyed everybody except for North Carolina, Michigan State, and um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're just undersized. That's why it we're was. just we're too just small. Undersized. You know, that, that was yeah. the thing. It has, you know, if, if we were all 6'9", six, 6'10", six, you know, we would have, you know, you having a different conversation. Oh, but, yeah. you know, so, yes. we willed them all to win, you know. And, and in the time we were there, you know, we saw we got to see everybody win. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's it's just simply because we recognize that every athlete wants to win. It's just that they're not in the condition. There not a lot of people are in the condition to win, exactly. whether physical conditioning, mental conditioning, or social conditioning, and um, that's that's what that's what we do. You understand? Yeah, it's, and if you don't have the physical, if you don't have the psychological, all the other stuff, you know, goes by the wayside. And I think you know, it took some. I mean, it took me time to learn. You know, you know, when I was under you, when I was your assistant, my first years, I used to scream and yell and freak out about people you know being in my weight room and you know everything had to go as planned and then I slowly realized that it, it doesn't matter you know it's, no. it's all about the message you deliver and no matter how it's done or who's there or what happens if you can get them to get their work done it's good to have challenges yeah. and different things it's good that everything yeah. doesn't go squeaky clean all the time yeah it's supposed to be a challenge in like brainstorm like it's supposed to be challenging like it's supposed to be challenging life is supposed to be challenging exactly like like how do you how do you know that you're alive if you're not feeling a little bit of pain and a little bit of joy how do you know that it's happiness if you've never been through sadness oh and that is one of the reasons why whenever we're training people we we vet the parents because if the parents is planning to take out the, um, the curling broom and start <laughs> making way for these kids, uh, we're going to walk away from it. I remember one day, uh, and I don't mean to cut you, I was training um, Adam Ozeri. He was about 13 years old. We are outside training in 95-degree weather with a pretty decent amount of humidity. Um, basically, a, a, a crazy experiment. And um, he got an asthma attack. We're about halfway down the field. On a, on a soccer field from um, from his bag with his pump. And um, he started to go down with an asthma attack and um, his mom ran over onto the field with the with the bag ready to give him his asthma, uh, his asthma medicine. I, I looked at her, I'm like, do me a small favor, just put that bag back over there for me, please. If he wants to breathe, he will go and find that thing. Because I don't think he wants to breathe. And Adam, when you're done, you come back and we have to do this work. And that poor little kid, 13 years old, struggled step by step, going to that bag, got his pump, got a couple of puffs, stuck the pump into his, into his hip, and ran back to me, ready to go again. And right now he's a pretty successful soccer player. Mm-hmm. Um, those kind of kids, we don't have them anymore because the parents not only will bring their asthma pump, Bring their, um, they'll bring their nebulizer, and they won't train for the next five days because these parents are are clearing the path for these champions to emerge. Yeah, that I understand no. that a champion has to fight through all of the, the the forests and the woods. Yeah, exactly, and it makes you who you are. You know, we we've talked about it constantly. You know, your experiences are who you are. You know, I talk about my experience with my you know, my cerebral palsy and all this stuff. But everybody asked me if it wasn't for that stuff, I'd be about an eighth of a person who I am today because I went through the adversity. My parents were there to support me and that's who makes you are. You know, we just talked about all the stuff you went through at an early age. If you didn't go through all that stuff, we wouldn't be talking right now. You'd probably question. be still living, you'd be living back there. Yeah, oh. question. What is the definition of ad? 
add yeah add to to add to to enhance something uh-huh versatility what's the definition of versatility to be able to go through conflict or versatility uh, mm -hmm. versatility is different 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 encounters when someone said they're versatile they can do many different things adversity ah right adversity that's what it is ad versatility mm -hmm. being able to go through different things being and able to, to go through different things yeah yeah and no <laughs> I and actually that's just figure that out yeah but no that's the thing there are there is not enough times of adversity and i think that's the biggest thing everybody thinks nowadays instead of going through adversity you go sign up at a performance place that does not give you adversity a deadlift bar is not going to teach you life lessons a kid twice your size who beats you up and takes your basketball is going to teach you life lessons or somebody telling you you're not any good at something that you think you're going to be great at is adversity or or go far beyond that life problems and issues with you know growing up in you know a difficult situation or things that happen in life those are adversity mm -hmm. and by mm -hmm. trying to shield that i don't you know it doesn't build the character of uh you know of the athletes we see today you know i think yeah. If you go through any athlete that's that's been through some you know successful athlete or successful people you know they'll always bring up adversity there's always adversity at some point in their life somebody told them no or somebody told them they couldn't or somebody laughed at them or they went through something that you know some people can't imagine but that is what made them who they are today billionaires yeah. sports athletes alike and you know we talk about all the time that's why i think michael jordan is always going to be the greatest because the guy just fed off of that adversity and if he didn't have anything he made it up Yep. He understood the mental aspect of the game, and and that making up that making up adversity. I, I've done it a couple of times, especially as a kid growing up in Jamaica, running by myself. I would create the faceless man, and let me give you who the faceless man is. The faceless man is me and all my strengths, none of my weaknesses. The faceless man is always five to six steps ahead of me, but I still have to keep at pace with the faceless man. You understand? Yeah. Most well, people don't do that. They 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 don't they they don't create an evolved version of themselves to compete against. They're busy looking at other people's statistics. It's their statistics, it's not your statistics. Look at your statistics. You know where you want to go and you go after it. Simple. Mm -hmm. And the only thing I, that matters are your statistics. <laughs> but on, on a more serious note, Joe, our mm -hmm. kids are being coddled to death. Yes. They're being coddled to death. Like, imagine you're living in a uterus that can, can constantly restrict you and you push against it and you push against and you get big and you're born that there's no more stress it's like a shark in a fish tank richard it only gets as big as its environment allows you to if you're in a place where everybody does it for you it's going to limit your growth if you don't put somebody in a place where they have to grow they're not going to grow and if they yeah. put you in a place where everybody does everything it doesn't give you it doesn't force you to make the decisions to get through things and then you can't yeah. go back into your if, if you run into something hard in life if you've already been through things that are harder than what's going on, then you can say, okay, now I've done this before, not this exact yeah. thing, but I've been through this before. So now I can take this experience and now I can use this experience to get through the next thing. But if you're constantly, if every time you have a problem and it's solved for you, yeah. you, know, you know, they don't know, you don't possess the abilities to be able to go through it. No, and that's, that's why I'm afraid of, I'm afraid of working with the bulldozer kids. Those are the ones who mommy and daddy paved the way for everything. And that's one of the reasons why I love taking children to Jamaica to train them in the hills. Because the, the modern luxuries are taken away. And you have to fend through this harsh, beautiful environment. You understand me? The only yeah. running water you get to play with is the one that's coming from the stream. 
You understand? And it's yeah. cold and you still have to bathe in it. And you still have to wake up early in the morning to go run at six o'clock on the beach or on the hill. You understand me? Or on the road. Mm-hmm. You still have to lift rocks because we did not have weights. So we use the rocks to work out. So that, that's how it is. I'm, right now, as we spoke about this a couple of years ago, yeah, it's taking these kids out of this environment and putting them in a place where they have to fight. Mm-hmm. Exactly. When I say fight, I don't mean fist fight. I mean no, like, putting him in fight mentally and, and, and figure things out. Cause yeah. their brain to callous over things that hurt and form new pathways to figure things out. Yes, man. Mm-hmm. I remember last year I had a bunch of guys who were going up Bonneview Hill in Port Antonio. And um, I told them about my 150 hill sprints that I had to do one day. And yes, 150 hill sprints is um, cruel and unusual punishment to people who can recognize cruel and unusual punishment. <laughs> but for me, it was one of those things. It was it was the furnace that made me ask the question, how bad do I want to be great? Yeah. That's what that was for. the furnace. I put some of the kids through that workout and um, about 75% of them throw up. The ones that didn't throw up are the ones that didn't pass a hundred runs. It's incredible. Yeah, putting them in a position to do that. And we did that at yes, LIU um, and now you can, you know, you're doing that with the younger kids. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think yeah. it's every day for you and me, you know, it's a learning experience, you know, dealing with new types of people and things and you know, everywhere you've been, you just you just reach into that bag and you take it, but we grow every day. You know, and, yeah. and I think that, but it's, it's getting, you know, sometimes it's difficult with, you know, because it's hard to put people in difficult situations because if they don't have the abilities to do that or to be abilities to figure it out, um, then, it, you know, it's very hard if you stick somebody in the situation and they can't get out of it because they've never been through it. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it's finding new ways I, to figure that out. I'm glad you talk about that tool bag. Yeah. Because I've always like, I'm going to dip into the strength and conditioning tool bag. I'm fearing I'm running out of tools. <laughs> uh, well, if you're running out of tools, you create the next one, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, it's Cuba all over again. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm still asking this question. What is strength and conditioning? Oh, it's going to be a question for years because there's so many, you know, if you want to go low level, it's, you pick things up and put them down. High level is, my opinion, it's a, a person that can change somebody through working out, both mentally and physically, for the better. And with the use of exercising, teach somebody how to be a better person and how to change change lives through the lessons being taught in the gym. What is the definition of con- conditioning? Conditioning is is teaching somebody a pattern in which to deal with certain types of either adversity or in order to achieve an outcome. I think we have it all wrong. It's conditioning and strength. Yes, we have to condition them first because once they're conditioned, then the lifting is easy. And I think that's what we've done. We have to, yeah. all the teams that we've had that are successful are conditioned first and the lifting and the strength gains come after. Because the strength is one of the easiest things to get. Like you, you have people lift things up, put them down for 21 days. You're going to get better through better technique, learning the movement a little bit better. Mm-hmm. The progressive overload is going to make you get better. And um, if you're growing, you're going to get better. So that's the easy part mm-hmm. five sets of five three sets of three whatever metrics you want to use but what happened if the individual is not conditioned to step on the court step on the field step on the track step on the cross bench of course then they're going to fail yes. and then they're exactly. con- and then and if they're not conditioned right they won't be able to deal with it yeah and it's not about just running up and down. Like running up and down, it, it is conditioning, it's cardiovascular conditioning, but 
that can't happen if the mental is not there. Exactly. And I think that's the biggest thing. The mental is always going to be the biggest thing. <coughs> yeah, man. So that, that's me in a little nutshell. Exactly. You know, and uh, so what's, what's next, Richard? What's on the horizon? What's on the horizon? If the world would allow me to, because I'm not going to go ahead and just take this one by the horn. I will be creating this whole hit and run. Actually, I've created this hit and run brand because um, hit and run is two basic instincts, fight or flight. And that is created to help those who absolutely want to be great and they're not that good to basically hit their targets and run fast. That's what's next. Exactly. Building Perfect. a community like you and everybody else from the Dungeon family, whether it's Nick, Kurt, Andrew Adham, Adam, Marcus, Raphael, Jillian, just spreading that news, spreading that, that message of, of greatness start from conditioning. Exactly. And That's think, what's next. Yep. And I think, I think we can end right there, Richard. That's perfect. Yeah, man. I appreciate it. Anytime, Joe.